Today on Blue 58, Matt LaFleur is heading into year two. Mike Pettin is heading into year three. Together, they're the two most important coaches on the Packers. But is there any reason to think that 2020 will be any different for either of them than 2019? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Today, as you might have guessed from the introduction, we're going to be touching on Matt LaFleur and Mike Pettin as we go through the early parts of our 2020 season preview here. Again, not really sure when this season is going to get started. The latest update on discussions between the NFL and the, the Players Association is they're starting to talk about money, specifically... The problem that is the 2020 salary cap and the 2021 salary cap and the salary cap for years beyond that, it looks like they're going to start to go down. And the Players Association seems to want to spread that hit over multiple years, while the owners would rather have it all happen at once. It gets pretty complicated in a hurry, so we're not going to go into it super in-depth on this show. I think I would rather, with stuff like that, wait until... The details are out and then sort through it and try to figure out what the implications are going forward. Then try to break down what's happening as it happens because that gets dated so fast. But that's what's going on and that could be a pretty big headache. As you might imagine, when money gets introduced into the equation, suddenly it gets a lot harder to negotiate. When you're talking about stuff like testing and how long guys are going to have to sit out and how big the practice squad is and stuff like that, well, that's, that's pretty easy to sort out, I think. It's just a lot of yes or no questions. But when you start talking about money and how much and when, things suddenly get a lot more complicated. People care about that stuff for some reason. Hard to imagine why, right? Uh, So we'll just wait and see exactly what happens and try to figure out the implications going forward. If there is a big drop in 2020, though, that could get ugly in a hurry for a lot of teams. Uh, The Philadelphia Eagles, go look and see how much money they have allocated towards the 2021 cap already. It's pretty wild. Um, the pay-as-you-go model is the the way to do things, and Russ Ball has kept the Packers in really good cap shape. Before we get to LaFleur and Pettin, wanted to follow up on a couple things from the last episode and point you towards what I think is a really good piece. My colleague at Acme Packing Company, Paul Noonan, uh, put together a good piece examining something that could play a big role in the 2020 season if and when that gets started. And that is the role of 11 personnel versus different personnel groupings for the Packers. Typically, the Packers have been an 11 personnel team. And if you remember back to take your eye off the ball in times when we've talked about this before, 11 personnel means one running back and one tight end. If I close my eyes and I think about what the Aaron Rodgers Packers offense looks like, I picture 11 personnel. And you probably do too. It's probably some combination of Jordy Nelson and Greg Jennings and Donald Driver or James Jones mixed in there. One of those receivers, or a group of three of those receivers, Randall Cobb in there. A tight end like Jermichael Finley or Jared Cook or Richard Rodgers, if you're a little bit on the unlucky side. And then one running back, whoever that might happen to be. By and large, that's how the Aaron Rodgers era offense has gone. Sure, you sprinkle in some two-back sets, Heavy personnel when you when you really need it, but by and large, it's been a three wide receiver, one running back, one tight end sort of offense. Paul's piece takes a look at whether that's even a good idea for any team to run in 2020. Is it an efficient offensive set to be in? 
and some of the numbers would indicate no, not so much. I don't want to spoil the piece or give away too much of it, so go check it out. I've linked to it in your show notes. But I want to talk about some of the implications of running things other than 11 personnel for the Packers real quick, specifically 12 personnel. We've talked about this in the past. It's a two tight end look. And if you just look at the tight ends the Packers have on their roster right now, it's easy to start getting a little bit excited about the possibilities here. So you've got Jay Sternberger, Mercedes Lewis, Josiah Degara, who's probably more fullback than tight end, but he's still going to be a tight end who does some fullback things and some slot things and some traditional tight end things too, and Robert Tanyan. And in 12 personnel, you're going to be taking two of those guys and putting them on the field together. And unlike you get with Madden, you can substitute guys in there however you like. Take whatever two guys you want from that list of four, and you start creating some really interesting possibilities. You want to go run heavy? Mercedes Lewis and Josiah Degara. You want to get a lot of size and speed on the field together? Well, you roll out Jay Sternberger and Robert Tanyan. You want to really throw some weird backfield formations out there? Maybe Aaron Jones and two real big guys in the backfield together? How about Josiah Degara and Jay Sternberger together? If you just want to go for a traditional inline tight end with a big slot sort of look, you pair Mercedes Lewis with Jay Sternberger or Degara. You can do a lot of interesting things and create a lot of different matchup problems for the opposing defense just with those four guys and a single running back. And that's the sort of thing that I think can get you a little bit excited about the Packers offense. Yes, they didn't add a receiver in the draft this year. Yes, the only new receivers on the roster, substantively new receivers on the roster, are Devin Funches and Reggie Bagleton and a couple undrafted guys, but that's really kind of beside the point. But that's not to say the Packers won't have options on offense. And if you read Paul's piece, you might find out that running things other than the traditional Packers 11 personnel look might be the best way to go anyway. So check that out. I hope it gets you as excited about the 2020 Packers offense as it did me. Following up on the last episode, got a good a couple good questions from Rudy, the good question asker. Um, he, he posits a couple things about Brian Gutekunst here. First, Rudy asks, quote, did Goody execute something for like four-dimensional chest in drafting his first two picks at positions we don't need for 2020 but might need for 2021? Is he betting big on no or limited season this year and therefore gave himself flexibility, more flexibility for the future? Kind of sheds new light on the picks for me. I still really disagree with him, but maybe less so if there's no season this year. So let's take the last part of that first. If there's no season this year, does that change how we look at Brian Gutekunst's 2020 draft? I tend to think not, because I think this is a roster-building strategy that is is kind of time agnostic here. I think you're, you're building out parts of your roster that you're going to have to address anyway, whether there's a season or not. So let's say there's no 2020 season and everything just tolls over towards next year, and you're just starting from scratch with the guys you have this year, plus another draft class. I really don't think it, it changes how you view the 2020 draft class at all. Maybe you've got to draft some different things next spring. I don't really think so. I I don't really think it's that big of a change because whatever you would be drafting next spring probably is coming out of a 
college football season that didn't happen either so you're not going to get a whole ton out of those rookies either and the rookies that you had from 2020 were on the shelf for an entire year too I it just it just starts to break down there a little bit but what I do think is happening is something different entirely that is also a very defensible strategy for for Brian Gutekunst and it's something that we happen to have talked about before strengthening your strength depth is a really fungible thing in the NFL it can change really quickly. It can be defined differently at the drop of a hat. Say, let's let's look at running back, for example. Right now, the Packers would seem to have a surplus of good running backs. They have Aaron Jones. They've got Jamal Williams, who were both good in their own ways last year, Jones especially. And now you've got A.J. Dillon, a second-round pick, added to the mix. Well, let's say, just for the sake of argument, in the first game of 2020, whenever that might ha- might be, Aaron Jones plants his foot to cut up field and turns over his ankle. He's on the shelf for a month, month and a half with the dreaded high ankle sprain. Suddenly your depth is just two guys again. You're back to where you were last year with Tyler Irvin in the mix. Tyler Irvin, probably not really a full-time running back type guy anyway. So really you've got just got A.J. Dillon and Jamal Williams who have really pretty overlapping skill sets. And you don't really have a ton of depth anymore. Just like that. It's all gone. So even though you don't technically need A.J. Dillon, you get him because you think he's good and he can give you depth at a position where depth can disappear really quickly. Also, two-thirds of the Packers' top three running backs are free agents after this season. If things get really haywire with the cap, Jamal Williams could be a cap casualty now. Like before the end of August, he could be out of Green Bay. If you've got a sudden drop in the cap and you can free up two and a half, three million million, $3 million, like you could by dropping Jamal Williams, it's starting to look pretty good. Because, as Rudy points out, you drafted a running back that you didn't necessarily need. The same thing kind of goes with Jordan Love. The Packers, even if Aaron Rodgers isn't the player that he once was, still have a pretty strong position group at quarterback even without Jordan Love. But Rodgers isn't going to be around forever. And if something would happen where he gets hurt. Now, with Jordan Love, at least you hope that your entire season doesn't go down the tubes. If you've got an opportunity to get a good player, it's best just to take him and let the, the depth chart sort, it out, sort itself out later. You can strengthen positions that already look strong, and it doesn't really hurt your roster as a whole. Now, you really shouldn't do that overly much. There is some need-based picking that you should probably do at some point, but I don't think that Brian Gutekunst taking two players at positions where he didn't necessarily need need them is some some kind of four-dimensional chess thing. I think it's just, hey, he, he got guys that he liked. They fit where he thought they should go on his board. And he took them. And it sets him up to devote draft picks to other things in the future because now you don't have to take a quarterback high next year. You probably don't have to draft a running back as high either because you've been backfilling those positions ahead of time. Second question Rudy asks, what is the Green Bay Packers sellout streak at? As far as I know, they always sell Lambeau Field out. Where, though, does the ten to 12,000 fans per game fit on this list? Can the league or Packers count 12,000 fans as a sellout crowd of the streak? in the streak if 12,000 is the capacity for that game. 
How do these records work? And do the Packers hold the sellout streak record? Let's take on the first part there. I think, I would guess, that if the Packers set their capacity at, say, 12,000, just for example, and they get 12,000 fans in Lambeau Field, that would count as a sellout. It's not your maximum possible capacity that could fit into your stadium, but it is your maximum functional capacity, so I would say that technically is a sellout. But that that is up to the league. I should add as well that if you start looking at attendance figures and they look really consistent to you, there's a good reason for that. Attendance figures aren't really attendance figures anymore. They're just tickets given out by the game. So you have or given out by the team. So you have the the capacity of Lambeau Field. I think it's what 83,000 now, just a little over 83. Let's say it's 80,000, just to use a round number. The Packers can sell 80,000 tickets for a game and have that be a sellout. The number that they show in terms of attendance, quote-unquote attendance, is really just tickets they, they gave out. Tickets people bothered to pick up. So tickets you got delivered to your email inbox. You picked up physical tickets from the ticket office. Stuff like that. It's not necessarily who actually came through the gate because teams have just decided that they're going to do whatever they can to inflate their attendance numbers anyway. Very rarely do you get true estimations of um, how many fans were actually at a game. So so don't get too hung up on, on the attendance figures ever. I do think that if the Packers reduce their capacity to 12,000 fans, it would count as a sellout because if you just sell all the available tickets you have for the game, that is kind of by definition a sellout. I don't know exactly how those records work because there is a lot of a variance in um, in stadiums, in where teams have played, and it gets complicated in a hurry. For instance, there are actually two sellout records in the NFL. The Packers have the record for the longest sellout streak of all time for home football games, but the Packers have not played all of their home football games in the same city. As you'll remember, for quite a while, they played a couple home games a year in Milwaukee. And even if those games were sold out, they did not count as sellout games in Green Bay. So the Packers have a long home sellout streak, the longest home sellout streak of all time, dating back to 1959. I'm not exactly sure how many games that is. But the Denver Broncos actually have a longer single city streak than the Packers because they have played all of their home games in the city of Denver. But as of November 2018, when the record or when this article that I looked at was written, it played 359 straight games in Green Bay. So add up a couple more to that as well. You're probably into the low 370s now in Green Bay and they've sold out all those games in a row. Add a couple in Green Bay every year and you're well over 400 games in a row. So that is a long way of saying, yes, the Packers have the longest streak, but it's not necessarily the longest streak in one city because the Denver Broncos have a longer streak than that. Finally, Rudy just offers this comment. Uh, quote, while I agree that sitting in a near-empty stadium is way worse than a full one, I do it in a heartbeat. You probably get amazing seats. Instead, a really good shot at hearing what is actually happening on the field. Would be weird for sure, but kind of cool too, end quote. And Rudy is referring there to when I said it, it might be kind of depressing to go to Lambeau Field. Um with no fans in attendance. But 
I, I can see the other side there. And he does point out that it would be really cool to see what is actually happening or hear what is actually happening on the field too. That is a very cool thing about attending games in person. Even with the crowd at full throat, you can still sometimes hear what's going on in the field to get a different kind of sound of the collision of pads and stuff too. So that is really cool to cool to hear. And with only 12,000 fans in the stadium, uh, that would be um, pretty amazing too. Plus, you'll always be able to say you were there during the extremely weird season that was 2020. So maybe that's worth something to you too. I'd still be pretty leery of the virus, just getting that many people together in one spot, but that's just me. Your tolerance for risk may vary. Welcome to America. Let's talk about Matt LaFleur and Mike Pettin. Matt LaFleur is the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of Blue 58. No, uh, Matt LaFleur is heading into year two of his head coaching tenure with the Packers. And if we look back on year one, we will see a season that wasn't all that different numbers-wise from Mike McCarthy's last year. Scoring, the Packers were 14th in 2018, about the same there in 2019. 2019, excuse me, weird emphasis there. Yards, the Packers were 18th in 2018. They were 12th in 2019. Explosive plays had actually a few less in 2019 than they did in 2018. Culture-wise, you could see things were pretty different. Just the feel of the team was different, a little bit more upbeat, a little bit friendlier, a little bit less cold than it was for Mike McCarthy there towards the end. Just probably a happier atmosphere, I think I would say. None of those things are really stuff you could hang your hat on going into year two. For Matt LaFleur, I think it's fair to expect that he has a little bit more defined vision of what's he want, what he wants to do on offense. Maybe he has a little bit closer personnel to what he would really like to have on offense. And should have his system a little bit more firmly in, implemented than he did last year. A lot of smart people have pointed out um, that playbook-wise, 2019 was basically like, McCarthy at least, just the things that the Packers were running, maybe 40 to 45% Lafleur. Peter Bukowski of the Locked On Packers podcast did some interesting stuff about this. I think, I I don't want to miscredit him, but I think he did a lot of interesting stuff about that. So check out his, his feed for some stuff about what the Packers offense actually looked like in 2019 uh, compared to McCarthy. But breakdown wise, it was, there was still quite a bit of the McCarthy Packers in last year's squad. I think that'll be different this year. In terms of what to expect from a second-year coach, I'm not sure you can really get a grasp on how a guy is as a coach until year three. I conducted a very unscientific experiment today. I wanted to look at how a guy's record was in year two with the Packers versus year one compared to how the previous guy did in his last season. So we've got quite a few examples of Packers history, in Packers history, of coaching changes. Dating back to Vince Lombardi, there are 11 coaching changes in Packers history. And that gives us a fairly broad look at how guys have done in year two with the team versus how the last guy did in his last year. In his second year with the Packers, Vince Lombardi's team recorded eight wins. 
The last year of the previous coach, the Packers only had one win. That is a seven-win improvement. Lombardi's successor, Phil Bankston, had just eight wins in his second year with the team, compared to Lombardi's nine in his final year. That was a decrease of one win. Dan Devine had 10 wins in year two after Bankston six in his last year. Bart Starr had five, a drop over the previous coach. Forrest Gregg had eight, an increase of three over the previous coach. It goes down the list. Most of the coaches in Packers history, the most or most that have gotten to year two at least, because Ray Rhodes didn't, have had still significant increases in year two over where the previous head coach was in his last year. But in year three, things really start to change. And I don't have all the numbers, but broadly speaking, the coaches that turned out to be bad started to go downhill in year three. We're talking Lindy Infante, uh, Dan Devine, uh, really Bart Starr started to go downhill a little bit at that point. The coaches that turned out to be pretty good in the long run were still on their way up. Mike Holmgren, Mike Sherman, Mike McCarthy, they were still on the upswing in year three. So we're still probably a ways out from seeing really what kind of coach Matt LaFleur is going to be. And I have a hard time, other than the culture, other than just a kind of vague feeling about what the team was like, have a hard time describing the first year of the LaFleur era. How was Matt LaFleur as a coach in his first year? Had good hair? Uh, Had pretty solid facial hair? Really improved in his press conferences? As a coach sometimes seemed a little bit slow to react. Sometimes he did the the Mike McCarthy thing where, um, well, he, he almost did the meme, like he shows up and his initial game plan doesn't work and he shrugs and says, well, guess I'll die. Got some of that in 2019. Had some other games where things adjusted down the stretch. Uh, week 15 or week 16, week 17 against the Vikings and Lions, I think are pre- two pretty good examples. The Packers are pretty slow early on in those games. They came on late. I think it's fair to expect a little less volatility this year. And I think if you're looking at two big goals for 2020, one would be week in, week out stability, just trying to get the same sort of effort, not effort, effort is a, a really loaded term, uh, same kind of results from the Packers week in, week out. Um, even if it's not wins every week, just looking for the same sort of performance. There we go. That's a, that's a much better word than effort performance from the team week in, week out. And then using more position groups that really maximize the team's strength. And I think that was something that LaFleur was actually pretty good on in 2019. He was good at putting in packages that use the unique strengths of individual players and, and found ways to get them on the field. Tyler Irvin, a great example of that. And he'll have to do more of that in 2020. Mike Pettin heading into year three is basically the same as Mike Pettin heading into year two. He told us prior to last season exactly the sort of defense he was going to run. Paraphrasing, but he said basically, look, I'm about stopping the pass. This is a passing league. We're going to stop the pass as, as much as we can. And by and large, the pass defense was good to pretty good. It didn't work so great as an overall strategy when he ran into an elite running team like the San Francisco 49ers. However, I don't think it's necessarily that terrible of an overall strategy to say we're going to go all in on defending the pass and just bank on not running into a historically great running team in the playoffs again. 
I think that works, broadly speaking. How many teams are there really like the San Francisco 49ers in the NFL? The Seahawks were supposed to be a good running team, but that's really only because of Russell Wilson last year. If it just came down to winning through the air with the Seahawks, and you're not doing scramble drill with Russell Wilson, things were pretty darn good. And by and large, throughout the entire season last year, the Packers were pretty good. Now, they did kind of tend to beat up on bad quarterbacks a lot, but there's a lot to like, too, I think, about how the Packers' defense played. The question, though, not so much as to whether or not that strategy is good, because I think it can be defensible. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a good strategy. I think I would try to shoot for a well-rounded defense. But if you're going to stop one thing in the 2020 NFL, the pass is not a bad place to start. It is kind of a passing league after all. Petten's not wrong there. But I think the big question for the 2020 Packers on defense is about regression. The Packers did, by and large, play pretty well on defense last year. wasn't perfect. They had breakdowns. There's the the bad run defense too. But the problem was they are set up for a huge regression just on the basis of injuries. Playing defense is so personnel driven and having an elite defense is so much about personnel that if you lose just a couple guys, things can fall apart really quickly. Look how vulnerable the Packers defense was for a long time last year. After Raven Green went down and before they started playing Ibrahim Campbell more. And Will Redmond out there a lot. It didn't, didn't go super well for the Packers. There was just a giant red flag above his head that said, throw the ball here. And if the Packers face a couple injuries like that again this year, there will be a significant regression. Say Zedarius Smith goes down for three, four games. Say Zedarius Smith goes down for two games. And for one of those games, Preston Smith is also banged up a little bit. Suddenly, your pass rush looks pretty pedestrian. Who's behind them? Rashawn Gary and pretty much nobody else. And given what we know about Rashawn Gary so far, which is not a lot, given how much he played last year, you might just as well say there's nobody behind the Smiths as far as known commodities and pass rushing. The flip side of that is that the NFC North on the whole, just isn't all that great. We talked about it in our NFC North preview. I think the teams are pretty close top to bottom. Packers and Vikings towards the top. Maybe the Bears fairly close to the Vikings, depending on how close you you put them with the Packers. Or flip-flop them. I think that's defensible too. Maybe the Vikings are ahead of the Packers. And then the Lions somewhere behind the three of them. But maybe not that far behind. After all, they did... Take the Packers down to the wire in both games last year, too. The Packers could be just as good again on defense this year just because they're going to face a lot of bad in the NFC North. They get six games against the NFC North. That's two games against either Mitchell Trubisky or Nick Foles. Two games against the Detroit Lions, who always seem to be trying their very best to beat themselves. And two games against the the Minnesota Vikings, who are always a little bit of a wild card. Played the Packers tough the first game. Played the Packers fairly evenly for most of the second game. And then Kirk Cousins just kept checking down and checking down and then missing check downs. And then the Packers offense woke up a little bit and that game was over all of a sudden. Suddenly Aaron Jones is sprinting down the sideline and the game is over. 
the Packers can rely on a lot of that again this year, I think. I don't see a lot of reason to think that the other NFC North teams put a lot of distance between themselves and the Packers. As far as goals for Patton for 2020, I think a little bit more consistent run defense, uh, finding a third pass rusher beyond the Smiths, however you do that, getting Rashawn Gary out there more, lining him up in different places, just figuring out a different way to use one of the other guys you got out there. And then finally, figuring out what to do with Josh Jackson or Montrevious Adams. If you're not going to play him, just get rid of him. It's simple as that. Don't keep these guys around just as, as roster fillers. Don't spend a lot of time making mistakes just because it costs you a lot of draft capital to do it. That'd be it. Those are my thoughts on LaFleur and Pettin. I'd be interested in hearing yours. What do you think of Mike Pettin and Matt LaFleur going into year two of their partnership together. Good, bad, indifferent. I want to hear about it. Let me know. Let's keep this conversation around the Packers going because as we all know, uh, in continuing that conversation is going to help us all continue to become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I've been your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time.